Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is a HeadGum Podcast. Welcome to A Few Things, where we give our greatest discoveries the podcast they deserve. I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. This show is brought to you by Avakind. Find out more and sign up for our newsletter at avakind.com. Hey. Hey. <laughs> you know, something people say to you a lot is how great your lashes are. <laughs> True story for like a really long time. Well, since they've college. been the same. Well, my lashes Well, you have... wore fake lashes a little bit in college. so A little bit. Really... Well, not that often. But like, No, yeah. no, no. There was a yeah. period yeah, where yeah, Mac yeah. was doing like funky like um what would you call them statement fake eyelashes statement lashes yeah. not like a kylie lash but like no no a, no they, yeah. they weren't even really meant to look real Mm-mm. yeah um but i was gonna but i people have told me i've had long lashes since before that because i've had the same lashes for a long time <laughs> how how <laughs> it, bold it, of you to reference a time before you. i knew you yeah it predates <laughs> yeah. you it's odd in yeah. that way but i will say that one of the like struggles of mm-hmm. having long lashes yeah um which is like the worst, mm-hmm. the worst humble brag that there is. <laughs> yes, or something. Continue to talk I don't about know. your long lash yeah. privilege, please. My long lash privilege yeah. um, is that m- a lot of mascaras get real clumpy and like mm-hmm. shitty on. La- you know what I, I don't mean? I don't even know if that's just a long lash thing because I think they get oh, clumpy on all the lashes. It does. That's yeah. true. But I think when you have long lashes, it looks worse because there's more of them. Oh. <laughs> wow! Wow! Okay. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> well, a mascara that I yeah. like that doesn't do that yeah um is called lily lolo that we just started selling on the site i'd been we i'd been like bouncing around to natural mascaras mm-hmm. for a good long while i tried this i like wore this origins one for forever yeah. and i kept getting black circles under my eyes it's great besides that that's my big complaint about mascara is getting the, the stuff under your eyes especially the natural ones yeah. um especially in the summer mm-hmm. i feel like i would always get that like you know that like half moon of, mm-hmm. of mascara crud um, and this is the first natural mascara I found that does not do that. Yeah. Um, but it also washes off super easily. I don't really understand how it works. Like there's no scrubbing involved. Is it there's a no... tubing mascara? No, it's not a tubing one. And the one, the mascara I was using right before this one mm-hmm. was a tubing one, which I yeah. liked. But then if my eyes would water, they would burn from like the tubing <gasps> wow. things. I don't know. Interesting. Lily Lolo, no smudging, no burning. 
What an endorsement. Amazing. Right? Yeah. And you have great lashes. So. Thank you. And they don't look too crunchy. No, they don't look they clumpy don't look at all. Crunchy, clumpy. They just anything. look long and delicate. Like, thank you. They belong to a woman with sensitive eyes and long lashes. <laughs> Um, this mascara can be yours. Um, <laughs> with the code, well, it can be yours with or without the code, but use the code a few things. Take 10% off. You're Give looking at me for confirmation. That's all true. Because for a minute, I thought it was $10 off, and then I was like, that's no. crazy. 10%, 10%, 10% off. Yeah, yeah, 10%. It's not that expensive. So no. this is still a good discount. No, it's not free. Yeah. 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 Um, Something else we wanted to talk about. We, you and I traveled together recently. We did. You got pulled aside. You're like, you take a lot of pride in your TSA mm-hmm. pre-check. I love the T. I'm I'm not just TSA pre-check. I'm global entry. Uh, okay, I'm global entry too. <laughs> Fine. After much badgering, <laughs> much <for me>. badgering. <laughs> I yeah, the global entry part doesn't come. I mean, it will come in handy for me. Yeah. It just hasn't really yet. Um, so I, right. it doesn't feel worth bragging okay. about yet because yeah, I haven't really right. used it. That's fine. Um, so but yes, yeah, you I love entry. being pre-check. I in fact go, coming and going. I got stopped rather randomly both times. La- the, the going, they just said this is random. You need to be pulled aside and patted down. Going, I got pulled aside and it was because I had done the good deed of making us a lovely breakfast. You Um, did. You made us yogurt, granola. It had fresh peaches in it. It was was, blueberries. It was a parfait. Yeah, it was a parfait. Um, I brought like utensils and everything for us. And you brought those from home, those utensils? Yeah, yeah Well, sure I'm did. just learning this now. <laughs> and that little bowl, that little card, like bamboo I bowl. mean, I guess if I had thought about it, yeah. I don't know where in <laughs> right. we Terminal 4 at JFK time. you would have gotten it. Yeah. Well, I thought you just grabbed plastic forks from a, another food vendor from SIBO. No, no I had you in mind when I Thank left you. the house. Oh my gosh, wow. Anyway, I got pulled over for it. Not You know, pulled over, <laughs> pulled aside. <laughs> He went through my bag and I, I had also d- made such a point of chugging my water before I went through. So I was like, what is he looking for? I've and, done everything right. Yeah. And he said, you, it's because the food. And I, he said, when they finally just um, when they finally just tell us you can't bring food on airplanes, this is all going to be a lot easier. And I was like, no, mean? sir, we're not doing that. No, we are not crazy. doing that. And then you said you had read that this was like a thing. General. So basically last year around Christmas time, I started experiencing this or like at Thanksgiving, Christmas, when I flew both those holidays, everybody was being stopped for food. No one knew it was happening. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was like, wait, what? And people were flying from New York. So like people were like bringing food gifts. So there was Bagels. like this woman, well, like this woman with a box of Magnolia cupcakes oh, who wow. was like, are you kidding me right now yeah. that I'm like having to open this for you and like prove to you like what's happening? So I also feel like those just aren't good enough to be taking on an airplane, but this fine, is, that's, that's a separate a, topic. That's, that's, yeah. That icing is phenomenal. It's good, but not the cake part, yeah. but the icing is okay. great. Okay. Yeah. So I read an article in the New York Times <laughs> recently that apparently, apparently this is a, a real concern for people in general, but they started doing this last summer, the TSA. There, there's no real rule around it. TSA officers can ask you to unpack your stuff for food, <sighs> which makes unpack, it worse. Can they make you throw it away? I think they can if it's like certain situations. I don't know. If they're so, suspicious, yeah, okay. I think they can. But the problem is there's no hard and fast rule. So it's like it's case by case or like TSA by TSA or line by line or whatever, which is just very confusing for people. And the idea behind it is to declutter bags because apparently it's hard to see what's inside of them because there's so much stuff. There's all, there's so many other things. It's like not the what's food's next? Makeup, makeup yeah. is what's cluttering people's bags. Yeah, like phone cords. Yeah, totally, you know? totally. <sighs> They're nine devices. Um, yeah. 
But anyway, decluttering felt like a very weird, like Marie Kondo term for, for what we're doing at TSA. And then, so there was someone at, at cited in the article who basically was like, okay, I've got this figured out. Like, I'm just going to take my food out and put it in a bin and like make this part of my process. Mm-hmm. And then she got chastised by a TSA officer who was like, excuse me, what are you doing? She's like, I'm taking my food out. And the woman was like, why would you do that? And she's like, Be- I, uh, <laughs> I think... The thing is, we need rules from the no, TSA. No, I was going to say, I think that's where, that's where this all went wrong. Is what it need, The TSA officers and the people all want hard and fast rules. We need rules. That's right. No. Give us rules. I think we should have rules on this for sure. I mean, I also, I if he had taken away, I would have assumed that they were just telling me yogurt was a liquid, even though it was obviously very thick Greek yogurt. It was yogurt. obviously thick yogurt. Well, you know, I like it. Th- no, it was. No, know, it, I, it was, I, was, I wasn't yeah. mocking you. It was obviously <laughs> thick. It was I, thick. Of course. What other yogurt are we eating? It wasn't a liquid one, but no. I don't know. Anyway, so just be prepared, people, if you're bringing like smoked salmon on the plane. Be careful. Yeah. Um, should we bring our guest on? Let's do it. We are so excited about our next guest. Glynis McNichol is an author and co-founder of The List, a networking platform dedicated to amplifying the visibility and women in the professional sphere. Eric and I are both members. Oh my gosh, have been for years and years and years and love it. Um, In addition to that, we both also read her recent memoir, No One Tells You This, which is out now. We loved it. Glynis, will you tell us what it's about? Hi, you guys. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thanks for being here. I'm so excited. Um, The memoir is a memoir of my 40th year. I turned 40. I faced it with some dread and some shame, weirdly, as if I should apologize for the fact I was turning 40 as a healthy, successful woman Mm -hmm. in America. Yep. And uh, you're made to feel like those things are worth (laughs) apologizing for right now. Yeah. 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 Just, it was just like, in hindsight, that all seems crazy, but it was very, very real at the time, and I think real for many women. And then the year uh, became, like, I w- it was a very unexpected year of both adventure and exhilaration. And mm-hmm. on the flip side, it was difficult in ways that no one had prepared me for. Like, I was a caretaker for my mother. My sister was home alone with three small children. And I spent the year in- feeling like increasingly resentful that, I had not been prepared for any of it. I mm-hmm. hadn't been prepared for the freedom mm-hmm. that I was experiencing, and I hadn't been prepared for the responsibility. Mm-hmm. And when I say prepared, I just mean like we have such narrow narratives around women's experiences yeah. and that mostly tie to marriage or motherhood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what? no one's talking about this. There was and you had neither. No, nothing. I yeah. Yes, I was single. I had no children which I think, you know, obviously uh, contributed to this sense of failure and shame that I sort of approached the age list. But, like, there was no stories about it. And I think we all use, like, on a very basic level, movies, television shows, books, as, as a blueprint or a guide or a reference point to how to live. And there were none. And I yeah. found that really hard. And so at the end of the year, I, I had a, a moment of... Uh, realization that you know i am a full-time writer and i perhaps had enough material to write my own book uh about what the year had been like and there it just so happened that you know i'd had a, a so many of these things that occurred within that year 
that it, I thought it could make for a good story. Could you remember everything that happened, given that you, you didn't realize you were going to write a book about it while it was happening? So the interesting, yes, uh, for the most part. Um, I didn't keep a journal that year, which I think is a testament to how intense parts of that year were, yeah. particularly mm-hmm. around my mother. Yeah. Uh, the flip side is a number of the, the trips I was taking were the base. I was on those trips as a journalist to write stories. Mm-hmm. So I had notes from them. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we all like between our text messages and our Instagram, yeah. I could go back to my phone and scroll through for dates and times. Yeah. And the story was so recent that it, it wasn't like I was writing about being 23 years old in New York, which is also a fun story. <laughs> it seemed like it from reading the book yeah. and, and meeting your friends yeah. from that time. Yeah. In that book. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But like I, I could go to people and say, I, this is how I remember this. You also mm-hmm. remember it this way. And it, it was so recent that everybody, like I, I cleared everything in it with people who were like, yes, I do remember this That's exactly good. happening. Um, how, do so. you, how did you think about editing? Like what was going to make the cut in a book where you're writing about this year or this experience? So weirdly, the year aligned itself to a, like a rough narrative arc. It started out very bleak. Uh, there was real challenges around my mother's illness. Yeah. And then it ended with me like almost literally riding off into the sunset <laughs> in Wyoming with like cowboys and horses Truly, in the field. truly. Yeah. So, uh, a vision. Said, <laughs> it, yes. And I thought, oh, good. I get to, you know, appropriate the, the image of the cowboy, which we allow men to be all the mm-hmm, time, which is, you mm-hmm. know, the individual riding off into his life and I'm like I'm gonna do that (laughs) but that said it is really difficult to apply a narrative to your own life yeah I think it's so easy and to to choose the things that make the beat of a good story was a was a learning curve and I think there were certain things that I had to cut you always have to keep in mind that you have a reader Mm -hmm. and like the readers here you have to keep their attention and that you are, you have to make it worth their while. So even though I would find small things like deeply important, my right. editor would be like, no one literally cares about this. <laughs> yeah. Also, I think the opposite few, is look- true too. knowing what about your life that you consider to be totally quotidian and boring that other people are like, no, no that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. There were certain portions where I'd be like, Oh, this is so snoozy. And, and my editor would be like, no, yeah. This is what people want to know about. Yeah. Um, this is what they're here and for. Also, yeah. Like in a number of instances, I just, there's a note at the beginning of the book about how the, the Tinder date is really like a, a combination of a number of Tinder dates, because this wasn't a book of like, when is mm-hmm. bad Tinder dating. Right. It was, it was like, <laughs> like, let's just choose one and incorporate some elements into it that you've experienced. And there's certain conversations where I've had them so many times. Like that I just had to choose right. the one I thought was good for the book, especially around like, oh, there's still time or, oh, you're not married or like stuff like that that just continues to happen. And you just sort of think, all right, like nobody needs to hear this over and over again. Let's mm-hmm. just choose the one that feels just a representative example. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
That's really interesting. Did somebody sort of, it, how did you learn that you had to do that in writing a memoir? Were there, was there someone who sort of taught you like here are the basic sort of tricks you have to get on board with to, to turn your life and think a about story. composite characters or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say my, I have Christine Pride is my editor and she was so involved in amazing and patient and encouraging. Um, Part of it is I've been a full-time writer for so many years right. that there's certain muscles that are just in shape and you can sort of instinctively feel like when a chapter should end or mm-hmm. how a story arc works. That said, the first draft of this book was so abominable <laughs> that I handed it to my editor like almost in tears and I said, this is just the worst first draft that's ever been written. And she, she read it and she goes, it's not the worst one I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> But also, you've been a writer for long enough that you know that that's part of the process, right? Yeah, and I honestly, when I was, you know, a beginning writer, there's this urge to skip ahead of all the grunt work. Right, Like, I want to do this big project right now. And as I was writing this, I just kept saying, like, prayers of gratitude and thanks that I had all those years behind me of, like, so much of it was crap writing and so much of it was writing I didn't love to just have the faith Mm-hmm. that it didn't matter if I felt like this today or I would get to the other side or like I recognized all those feelings and they didn't throw me into a panic in a way if I didn't have all those years behind me I don't like I don't I would never have gotten through this so that's amazing I that's think, I feel like that can be applied to so many sort of creative um, practices that you have to have uh-huh. that faith and you have to learn that faith that just because you know your first draft your first try doesn't suck or sucks doesn't mean that you're not going to get the there. final product well, yeah 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 we're so I think every we're in such an accelerated pace in the world that I think people feel like they that jumping ahead is something to be celebrated mm-hmm. and coming out of this I just thought oh my god I'm so glad for all those 25 blog posts with all their spelling mistakes. Like, sure <laughs> <laughs> I've never said that before. <laughs> yeah. Those are behind you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are there memoirs or even novels that you looked to for inspiration when you were writing? I have a whole, my writing table in my apartment is like, it's just, it's just stacks of books. And some of them, like I had, Wild was really important to me mm-hmm. for the way she structured the book, I mean, it's a beautiful book and her writing's incredible, but also so helpful to me and like as a craft. Mm-hmm. Um, Beryl Markham's uh, West with the Night is one of, I talk about yeah. it a little bit in the yeah, book, yeah. one of my favorite, favorite memoirs. And obviously Laura Ingalls is a huge influence yes. in me, but I literally used to <laughs> just stack all of these books, like H is for Hawk, Negro mm-hmm. Land. I had uh, dispatches, you know, all just, I would stare at them and Sometimes I'd pick them up, like uh, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, mm-hmm, Big mm-hmm. One, um, Blood, Bones, and Butter, mm-hmm. Gabriel Hamilton. Love just, that book. Yeah, so good. But I would just Sometimes I just needed to look at them and know that someone else had got to the other side of this, right. like, that it was possible. It was almost like they were my little cheering section just by <laughs> staring at them. But, but so the ones I mentioned were important to me as a reader. You know, I would... I. I relish the writing and the storytelling and especially I can't cook. Literally I can barely cook a boiled egg. And, uh, I, I would, there's something about cooking memoirs that I just love so much. And I think it's the, like the 
the ability to write in detail about something that could be mundane and yeah. make it fascinating. Mm-hmm. So when I really considered like, oh my God, is this the most boring thing I'm writing? I could turn to some of those chapters and think, no, you know, the, the menu, as you said before, the small things are the most fascinating in many cases. Um, another, a big theme in the book, in addition to obviously being being childless and or, or child free, however you want to say it, and being single <laughs> is female friendship. And I felt like that was such a I mean, there's so much about about the book where I think the reader just kind of feels like they want to be you. But that that to me was a big part of just like, oh, you have this incredible anchoring force in your life in, in these women, which I thought was was just wonderfully inspiring. Can you talk a little bit about how you thought about weaving that into the book? Absolutely. I think one of the one of the motivations for this book was that I really I have wonderful friendships and I value them so much. And many of them date back, you know, more than 20 years. And I wanted to recognize them. And Mm -hmm. I think culturally, we've been talking a lot more about the importance of female friendship. Yeah. And I think certainly as we all have. Well, I don't have children, but as women tend to have children later in life and there's not the family infrastructure our female friendships are, are the supporting network of how we get through and they take on this extraordinary role in our lives. And I really wanted, because mine are so key to me, I just, I really wanted to celebrate them and just say like, I, they're so important to me because I talk about this in the book too. And it's something I think a lot about mm-hmm. is the lack of ritual around women's lives outside of a wedding or having a child. Yeah. And yeah. like, Ritual is about recognizing the importance of something and also the progression. And so in some ways, this book for me was like a ritual and a recognition around these friendships. And I cleared it all. (laughs) 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 And they're so supportive. So it's, and it's so interesting to you guys, because I did an interview with a male journalist who I really like and respect. And he said to me, some people have pointed out your book passes the Bechtel test, the Alison Bechtel test of two women talking to each other about something not to do with a man. And you said, did you set out to do that intentionally? <laughs> oh, my so, God. In what uh, world could you not have written a book that, that passed the Bechtel test? That would have been impossible for you. Wow. And I, but it was so revealing to me because I said, you know, like I set out to write a book that was like an honest reflection of my life. And the truth is few women I know don't conversations with each other about a man yeah. <laughs> right but also how would men know that when we actually need a test right to pass because so few of so little of what we see on screen actually reflects the fact that we actually don't talk about men all that much like it's, it was such an interesting <sighs> an interesting commentary on how men view female friendship <laughs> as about them, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, how they insert themselves right into it. <laughs> I mean, men figure into this book in very sort of secondary ways in general. Um, mm-hmm. They feel like secondary and tertiary characters, and even your your business partner is a is a woman and very much your friend. And obviously that's something that we could relate to a lot in that sense of like, it's not having a business partner who you're such close friends with. It does feel like a spouse in a lot of ways, or it's, you know, in, <laughs> to use a, mm-hmm. a Mary H.K. Choi term, it's your emergency contact. Um, and I loved the way that Rachel played into the book as just sort of the person you text upon, you know, take off and landing. And it's that person for you. And it felt very natural the way she she filled that role for you in the book. Just to be clear, like 
she just before I came on, she texted me to tell me she was taking off on a plane and a few <laughs> days ago. We flew to Los Angeles together in seats beside each other, and we both picked up the phone on takeoff to be like, oh, I don't have to text you. Like, FYI, the plane's wow. taking off. Wow. Look at you two. It's a habit to check yeah. in with people, and you create those relationships in your life because they're important and necessary, and, you know, that's how we all have, like, a fulfilling existence i just really i'm not telling you guys anything you don't know and probably anything no no but no i it's super interesting see it yeah totally is is problematic well and i think that was me one of one of the things that i really loved about the book was that it you it didn't feel heavy-handed or instructional in that way where you needed to say like rachel is in many ways my spouse it just it felt very natural and especially (laughs) to me as a woman reader like it's just like yes this person is your your partner and your, and she's your life partner in a lot of ways. And it was just very, um, you know, you illustrated that in a really beautiful way without having to hit anybody over the head with it or make an argument about it. It's just, this is what women's lives look like. Um, and that was really wonderful. Glennis, what are some of the, well, th- Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just, just going to say, I'm glad you think so. Cause I loathe prescriptive books. Mm-hmm. And I really <laughs> consciously yep. did not want this book to be like, here's how you should live. I, I thought of it like, like the life after 40 for single uh, women without children is it felt to me like a bit of a no man's land. Like yeah. There was no map, there was no blueprint. And I felt like I'd sort of gone out and was sending back a dispatch. Like, here's my report from life out here. Uh-huh. Here's what I'm seeing and feeling as opposed to like, here's a guidebook of what you should do. Cause totally. I can't stand that so, at all. As two women who just finished writing a book about women business partners that we did not want to be prescriptive. We feel your pain. It totally. was, it was, you yeah. know, there is, I think a lot of pressure, maybe especially in women's literature when you're, you know, talking about something sort of new to do that. And we, we felt the same way where we were really tried not we to want to like show different paths, but not tell you how you should do it. Cause you should do it however yeah. you want to do it. Um, yeah. I, I think that struggle is the result of how few story, stories we have about women. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. You get pushed into this idea that you're speaking for everyone, mm-hmm. whereas that's just the result of it. I always think of like the library of history, women's stories by women barely occupy like half a shelf. Mm-hmm. And that as women are so often criticized for, you know, writing their own stories, the personal essay, the memoir, and as if it's a diminished form of storytelling Mm -hmm. when in reality if every person on this planet every woman wrote like five memoirs we'd still maybe get one shelf like it's just (laughs) we're we're working from such a deficit yeah it's going to be a long time before we catch up yeah no I think it's funny I didn't even identify that that is why that spoke to me but I definitely that is something we share that sort of like it doesn't need to be prescriptive what have been the reactions um from your readers to your book so far, it's been a week, but I'll say so far, the most uh, across-the-board reaction has been one of uh, sort of thank you for taking my life seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody who's interested in appealing to women for anything, taking them seriously mm-hmm. is a, like the number one key to success. And I don't just mean single women. I have heard from women in their 20s to women in their 70s, married, not married, children, not children. And across the board, there is this sense of, uh, in the language and in the tone, like, thank you for taking this seriously. And I just think how moving that is 
and also what a reflection that is to how unseriously we're accustomed to be taken. And yeah. I mean that on every level, not just like law, paycheck, mm-hmm. uh, like how we frame things that we tailor for women with like pink or like soften, soften everything as if we're fragile creatures or less than, or like we get special selves or the chiclet movies, like just, I'm not saying anything new, but it was really, it's really been overwhelming to see such a across the board response from all age groups. And I keep trying to emphasize that because I just think like, what a missed opportunity for men with money. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) A lot of money to be made by taking women seriously. And I, I don't meet, like there's a theme there, like just take women seriously for Christ's sake. Absolutely. Absolutely. Truly. Um, are there other books that you're reading you're excited about these days? So I am having a hard time concentrating this week. But I can't imagine book- why. <laughs> <laughs> um, I find myself reading a lot of Agatha Christie. I think Agatha mm-hmm. Christie is the greatest go-to when you want to read something smart, but you can't like focus too much. Uh-huh, She's so uh-huh. brilliant I at lo- story crafting. I really need to... You... you um celebrate in the books Laura Ingalls Wilder in such a big way and now mm-hmm. hearing about Agatha Christie those were the two books that I read as a kid a ton Agatha Same. Christie and Laura Ingalls and Nancy Wilder. Drew I read a lot of Nancy yeah. Drew on top of that but yeah yeah um I I think I need to be taking more book recommendations from you and also clearly revisiting the literature <laughs> yeah. of my childhood yeah go back to your childhood yeah. bedroom, and there's some yeah. good stuff there Agatha Christie really Agatha Christie holds up and I say I, in the other books and I know everyone's talking about this book is uh my year of rest and relaxation yeah and I just started it. I haven't, it's called, I've only read five pages and it's calling to me, but I, I think there's something interesting happening here. Stories about women unattached to men. Like the yeah. premise of that story, as I understand it, is a woman like in her twenties who lives in an apartment in New York and doesn't leave it. Then I'm like, yep. how? <laughs> yeah. I love that idea. And, and, like, also, this is great. and like sleeps through most of that year, I think <laughs> yeah. is my sense. Yeah. Um, there's a it's New Yorker amazing. profile of the author in the like most recent mm-hmm. issue, I think. And she's got an amazing short story collection in a previous novel, and she's a really uh, uh, admirable writer. But just the premise of that is so appealing to me <laughs> that I'm like, I just love that it exists and it's getting yeah. so much attention. And, and I do think, I do think I'm just early out of the gate in this idea of centering a woman in a story that doesn't revolve around men or end mm-hmm. with some sort of marriage or baby solution. I, yeah, I feel yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. we're at the beginning of seeing a lot more of that, which like bring it yeah. on. Yeah. Like, I think you're absolutely uh, right about no that. marriage plot, no baby plot, none yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. Just you riding off into the hard... sunset. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And like, we have to retrain our brains to understand that's a satisfying story. It's, yeah. Yes. You know, yeah. I still get questions at these readings. Like, but don't you think, from older women, not anyone my age or younger, mm-hmm. like, don't you think you could be fat fulfilled if, like, 10 years from now you had a kid? And I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, <laughs> it's so hard yeah. to really grasp that this is satisfying and fulfilling. Right. Ugh, that's nuts. Um, well, Glynis, thank you so much for coming on. Um, this has been wonderful. Oh, God, we both so really excited. love the book. I will also say that I like sat down to read a memoir, but I really, it felt like sort of fast paced and gripping to me, like a novel in a lot of ways. Totally. And so I would recommend it to people who, who think that they're not memoir people. I think it's a really just enjoyable story. 
Oh, um, I'm so happy to hear that. There's Thank so you. much, too, yeah. that we didn't touch on here, like solo travel, like your oh relationship gosh. with your mom. Like, there's just so much good stuff to get into and to ponder. Um, I feel like it opens the door for lots of conversations in that way, too. Um, anyway, that's the show. You can listen to us wherever podcasts are found, like Stitcher, iTunes. Leave us a review and now Spotify. Follow us at Of A Kind on Instagram and Twitter and like our Facebook page. If you have ideas or requests for the show, email them to a few things at ofakind.com. To advertise on our podcast, email advertising at ofakind.com. Our intro music, Butterfield East, is written and performed by the Soulful Saints. Our audio editing is done by Liz Smith, and we record at Showbriz Studios in East Village. write in and ask about our theme song it is called butterfield east and it is composed and performed by the soulful saints you can check them out over at dallarecords.com that was a headgum podcast